people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. The government has been making lists. Names of progressive journalists, activists. You're under arrest by order of the United States government. Mommy, I'm scared. Mass deportation. The suppression of the free press. The government is normalizing fascism. State-sanctioned hate crime. I've even heard that the government is building detention camps. There's armed conflicts happening across the entire country. It's not just guerrilla raids. We're talking full-blown civil war. How long can we stay here? Food's not coming to us. The gun stays with me. Who put you in charge? Somebody's got a man up! Listen to yourself. It's not who we are. Maybe it's who we have to be. Don't move! Amy! Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with the one and only Stuart Pankin. I'm talking to him all about, well, a lot of things. Not necessarily the news, a little bit about Hollywood Nights, a little bit about Scavenger Hunt, Dinosaurs... Gosh, bunch of stuff, but also talking to him about his most recent film, Deep in the Forest, which will be released May 2021. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I enjoyed talking with Mr. Penkin. I have been a fan of yours since, not necessarily the news, and I am very curious how you got into that and what it was like working at HBO at that time. It was great. Getting into that is kind of a story of, of connections, of contacts. I auditioned, this is a long story, I auditioned for a thing called the San Pedro Beach Buns, which was Aaron Spelling's first and last attempt at hour-long comedy. In that audition was a guy named Michael Jacobs, who later became a very powerful writer-producer. When he was doing a show called No Soap Radio, which lasted about five or six episodes, he called me to do that. And I auditioned and I, and I got the job. No phone calls, I'm on with Mike. So I did that show. One of the writers on that show was a guy named Ron Richards, who one day at a screening said to me, I'm doing a show called Not Necessarily the News. Uh, are you interested in doing it? One of the actors uh, left to do a movie. I said, what is it? What is that? It's on cable. What's cable? You know, I said, OK, I, you know, actors always want to get a job. I went in. I auditioned for that. And I got that job. I mean, it went from the San Pedro Beach Bums to No Soap Radio to to Ron Richards running into Ron Richards. Whether he would have, somebody would have contacted me or my agent would have called me, I don't know. But it was just very fortunate because that show was, for me, a life changer. I mean, it was a fabulous experience. At, at the time, there was, you'll pardon the expression, 90, 29% penetration of uh, all cable. And that's not including pay cable. That was a smaller percentage. So it was very relative. It's amazing that the show became so successful because there was relatively little amount of people, small amount of people watching 
you know, cable television, Showtime and and, uh, and HBO. But Michael Fuchs was the uh, was chairman and he really loved the show at the time. You know, Henry Schleif, both the, Henry became a friend of mine. He was vice president. They really championed the show and they <clears throat> and they pushed it. HBO, you know, was was a swell place to work for. We they, they treated us very nicely. We went all over the country doing HBO. I mean, not necessarily the news. You know, we taught at colleges or did lectures at colleges, taught classes. It was, you know, it was it was it was great. HBO was very HBO been very very good to us. You know, <laughs> so yeah, and and the National Cable Television Association at the time was very was becoming very strong, and HBO obviously was was uh, you know at the at, at the pinnacle of those of programming at the time. It was an exciting time to be to be working in cable. I mean, they had the cable awards. They had dinners and lunches and, and 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 events. It was a very it made you feel very good to be associated with that with that company. So yeah, HBO was uh, was swell. Now you had obviously done a lot of work even before you got to that stage in your career, and I'm so curious. How did you decide this is your life? You know, you're going to be an actor and and make that plunge. I mean, as a kid, I always used to like playing around at family dinners and singing and, and hamming it up for the, for my relatives. In college, I was signed up to be a psychology major because I really enjoyed that. But I knew somewhere in the back of my niggling little brain that I I, I wanted to to do this. So when the first audition came out in college for the first play that I was involved with as a freshman, and I walked across that lone, lonely, scary, dark campus to get to the audition site, and that's the truth, I, I said to myself, I must want this. And I got there and and uh, and I read for it and met Dave Brubaker, who was my teacher, my director, and became a dear friend, you know, over the years. And uh, I literally moved furniture. I played an extra. I moved furniture in the first play, but I was hooked. I mean, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And, and my friend Bernie, who was uh, in the in the company, was called the Mermaid Players. That was what we called. That's what we called. And, they, and there was no drama major. There was no drama major. There were only like five classes, drama classes. And Bernie said, the proper major for an actor is English. And I believe him. And I, and I became an English major. Would I have become a drama major if there was a drama major? I, I, I don't know, probably. But I'm kind of glad there wasn't because, you know, it was a whole different discipline. And I got to involved in, not that I remember a damn thing about English, but except how to speak it. And sometimes I do, do, do that. Yeah, that's how that's how it happened. It happened in college, and I and I just knew. But I did every possible thing in college, in productions and musicals, and I did every play I could in, in college. And uh, I was president of the drama club twice and treasurer. You know, I just involved myself, in, in, and I knew that that's that was it. That's what I wanted to do. Once you graduated, what was your path then? I went to Columbia uh, Graduate School for an MFA program, and I spent three years there. The last year, instead of writing a thesis, we did a production, you know, and then we had to write a write a, a thesis type thing about that. That was our thesis. And that's where I met my wife. So it was a great uh, it was great on all kinds of levels. Did you go right then into theater right after that? Graduated in 71. Yeah, I did. That. Yes. The answer is yes. I did the Shakespeare Festival, understudying parts and literally carrying a spear for two summers. I did a, a year at Lincoln Center as a journeyman, which meant you played small parts and, you know, and again, move furniture and understudied people. 
And uh, then I got, because my wife helped create a theater company in Pennsylvania at St. Vincent College, she got me involved in that. And that's where I, I, we did, Joy and I did pants full of stuff, plays, tons of plays that I'm so grateful for those people. Joe Riley was my director and dear friend, Father Tom Devereux ran the theater company. But there are parts that I would never logically and realistically be cast in, in the real world. And I got to play those parts. And it was, uh, not, it was a joy as well as an education. So that was kind of it. When I got out of college, it was, you know, Shakespeare Festival, Lincoln Center, and then St. Vincent for years. And then since I was in California, I did a few, few plays and readings here. But then, then, then the television and movie work started to come. Yeah, I think the first thing I remember seeing you in was Scavenger Hunt. That was one of the first movies I did. That's exactly right. That was like 79 or 81. I, I think I did a movie called Hollywood Nights, either before that or right after that. But Scavenger Hunt was very, was very early. That cast is just amazing. It's the cast of the Hollywood Squares, plus Robert Morley and, and, uh, and Cleavon Little and, and uh, Jimmy Coco. I mean, you know, it was just Roddy McDowell. I mean, the cast goes on and on. I mean, just to hang out with those guys, Richard Benjamin, uh, Tony Brandel. It was, it was, yeah, you're right. It, it was just a, a star-studded cast, and which makes it was one of the appeals of the movie. You know, not only the silly story, but which was a scavenger hunt, but uh, watching all those guys work together. Yeah, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. It was right during the gas crisis, so it was it was kind of challenging getting back and forth to work. But yeah, it was great. What have been some of your favorite roles to play over the years? Well, on the stage, there's too many. I mean, I love most every role I've played. I mean, that's where my heart is, the theater. Uh, you know, Huey Long in, uh, in uh, Old King's Man, exactly. It was the play version of Old King's Man. The role of Fatal Attraction was, uh, was, was tops and taps for me. You know, all of them. I mean, I, I, there's never a role that I, I look back and I said, I'm so sorry I did that. I mean, I've turned down roles in my life if they were purient or cigarette commercials or, you know. but. I, I can't really say anything that I've done on stage or film uh, I regretted doing. I mean, I, uh, I mean, the ones I turned down, I don't I regret not having done them because they would be, you know, they would have come and gone and I would have made a few bucks. But the stuff that I did do, I'm I'm very happy to have done it. I was very surprised when you showed up at Fatal Attraction because I had been so used to seeing you in more comedic roles. Right. Uh, and it's not that Fatal Attraction was, you know, drama like serious, you know, Medea, but Adrian wanted to cast me because he wanted Michael Douglas's character to have a lighthearted or lighter hearted, uh, not comic character, but comically inclined character guy to work with him to, to lighten up his character. So he he went for, you know. Uh, I mean, he, they wanted to cast somebody in New York because it filmed in New York. And God bless him. He he said, no, I want Stuart Pankin. And I, I was doing Not the News at the time. And I flew back and forth once a, once a, once a week for a month to, to film Fatal Attraction. You know, we were doing Not the News. I filmed, I flew in, I shot one day, maybe two days, flew back on the red eye, you know, once a week, a month. So that was, that was, it was tough and invigorating. And, and nobody knew that Fatal Attraction would become so so iconic and popular, but I knew 
that I had a wonderful time doing it. And uh, it was just a, a, the icing on the cake when the thing became so successful. Do I remember right? Didn't they shoot a whole different ending for that? Yes, they did. Uh, they, the original ending was she was pregnant, or maybe not, and uh, she killed herself and framed Michael Douglas, and he went to jail. And then they discovered a tape where she, Glenn Close's character, said, I'm going to put, you know, so I'm making this up, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you. I'm going to put you on. You're never going to get away. You know, I'm going to make you pay. They discovered that tape and they let him go. Well, it didn't play well, I guess, with, with audiences. So they filmed the ending that everybody sees, you know, drowning in the bathtub and then popping up and then Archer shoots her. Uh, Miss Close apparently wasn't crazy about that ending because it was more like a like a horror movie, you know, popping up and getting shot. But uh, the ending, apparently, the new ending played very well with uh, with audiences. Said, "Thank the Lord," and uh, you know, and then uh, the, the movie went on. We also do a uh, podcast about Barney Miller, and I know you showed up in there quite a few times. How was that experience for you? On screen, I did. At least two, maybe three. And then I followed one of the direct Bruce Bilson around to, because I was toying with being a television director. But Barney Miller was, uh, th- those guys are great. I mean, all of them. I remember there was a problem with a line and, and, and how I didn't want to say it or I want to say something different and how Lyndon was, was just, he, he backed me up. You know, I don't know if I got to say it or not because I didn't have any, any Danny Arnold power at the time. But yeah, Barney Miller was, uh, was uh, talk about iconic. I mean, that was a terrific show. I still see Max Gale in the gym sometime and you know, wave at him. And, you know, that's it. It's all, you, you know, I, I wish I could give you some controversy, but it's all good. When we were doing that, necessarily the news, they interviewed TV Guide. And remember TV Guide? Or you TV, <laughs> TV Guide interviewed us. Uh, it was a nice interview but then they called all of us and they said you guys are so nice you seem to like it is there any any controversy any any problems and we all said no we, we love each other it's a, you know they actually asked for controversy and we uh, we disappointed them so rich hall wasn't too annoying with the sniglets or oh, anything rich hall was terrible he was a he was a, he was a sex offender and a work harassment no no that's a joke you also used to show up on uh game shows all the time how was that I, I got involved with the $25,000 pyramid uh, because of not necessarily the news. I think that the our producer knew the producers of that show. So I got onto that. Later, Bob Stewart, who was the producer creator of many game shows, uh, we became dear friends. I mean, he was like a, a, a second father. He was a great guy. So I did that. And because of that, then I started to do these game shows, you know, win, lose, and draw, and uh, password, and, and a lot of game show pilots. I'm not sure where that came from, but I'm happy to have done them. They were, like I said, they were all interesting. It was just pyramid was a, a job. I say it was never, it was never fun because the pressure, the time pressure, and trying to win money for these people, were, you're always on the clock. You know, you're always, you know, and you're trying to come up with uh, with, with the right clues so these people can, you know, and and sometimes the money that all of us made for these people were life changing to them. I mean, it changed their lives. And so you didn't you didn't take it lightly. You tried to do as, as best you can on all on all the game shows. But yeah, game shows were it was great. It was fun. It was just again another little bit of icing, cherry on top of the icing on the cake. You've also done a lot of uh, voice work over the years, and I'm curious how you got into that and how that has been for you. Well, I think that came that came from dinosaurs. When I got dinosaurs, uh, which was Disney, I got 
I got to know the, the casting director, the voice casting director of Disney, and he got me involved with a lot of a, a lot of you know not a lot like not a ton, but a, a, a fair amount of Disney shows. Aladdin, I, I don't even know what they are. You know, Darkwing. I can't remember them. I could look them up for you, but it's you, you know better than I do. Voiceover is is a great job for an actor. You you can you can go show up to work in your bathrobe, you know, and 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 you work with a lot of interesting people. Voiceovers. Uh, for cartoons is different than dinosaurs. Voiceovers, you walk into a studio and you all sit, sit around a room and re- read the script and then they animate to your voice. And dinosaurs was just the opposite. You know, the puppets, you got, you sat in a room and you saw the puppets move their mouths and you had to replace the dialogue. So it's a very different, it's a different technique. Cartoons are a touch more creative because dinosaurs, you're relegated to the movements of the mouth. But eventually, after we did it for for any number of years, I learned from the puppeteers. The puppeteers learned from me, and we began to we began to be more in sync. Dinosaurs was the most expensive half hour, may still be television show to produce because of the animatronics and and the, the salaries and all that stuff. It was it was a massive, wonderful project, and you know, dinosaur because it was re released on. Disney Plus, people are now really coming to dinosaurs. And if anybody sends me, like during the pandemic, and I'm not bragging because it's not me, it's the show. During the pandemic, when people were sitting around watching television, I used to, I was getting two to four autograph requests a day for weeks from dinosaurs to sign their 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 pictures or, or Punko Funko Munko boxes, whatever those are. Yeah, and di- but dinosaurs was uh, it, it was a it was a terrific show, and it's still obviously known and recognized and appreciated. Not that we're out of the pandemic, but we're kind of out of lockdown for right now. I was curious, how did you handle that? What was that like for you? It was like everybody else. You know, you sit in your house, you you know, you you do uh, word puzzles and Sudoku. You watch television. You try to call people. You Zoom. I actually did. There was a play that a friend did a Zoom play. It was written for Zoom. It was called St. Mary Immaculate High School Reunion. And it was a reunion on Zoom because of the pandemic. And we did that for months and it was really a lifesaver. People bought tickets for it and the money went to to, uh, to fund a theater in Hawaii because the guys who did it were from Hawaii. But that saved my life a lot of the ways. You know, this and podcast, talking to guys like you, uh, that's what I did. You know, I, like everybody else, you just, you, you literally, you know, stayed home. And when you're of a certain age, you don't want to go out and, you know, take any chances. So you stay home, you get your, you get your vaccines and uh, you hope for the best. So what was the first project you did outside of the pandemic? Uh, nothing that I, you know, I did a couple of movies before the pandemic. Deep in the Forest is one of them. And that's coming out. I don't think that I, I going on to, I think I did a, a voiceover. I think I, I dubbed a Netflix uh, foreign movie. I think that was the first thing I did. But that, and there's another movie called Our Almost, I never remember the name. It's, it's Marriott Hartley and her husband, Jerry Sirocco, two wonderful people who did an autobiographical movie and they submitted them to festivals and they've gotten, you know, really great feedback. They won awards for it. That's coming out, you know, soon. I'm not sure where. Deep in the forest, I know, but that that movie's uh, going to come out. But after the pandemic, except for the except for the dubbing job, you know, and and like again, talking to, to wonderful people like you, I haven't gone out. I haven't done anything. Not that I want to do anything, but if somebody wants me, give me a call if you're listening. You know, 
I mean, there are some plays and stuff in the pipeline, but that's, you know, who knows? Well, tell me a little bit about Deep in the Forest. When did you shoot that? Uh, Deep in the Forest was, like I say, pre-pandemic. I guess we did it in 2019. It's, as they say in the trades, a political thriller. A lot of the posters show, you know, helicopters and guys with guns. It's not really that, you know. Uh, it's kind of a political thriller about a a postulated fascist government taking over the, the world and a bunch of freedom fighters, so to speak, uh, objecting to their to their actions and hiding away and waiting for the for the war. There's a war between the freedom people and the government, and we're hiding away to try to survive while the while the uh, the uh, the war ends. And it's and it's not only about the politics. The interesting thing for me is the dynamics between the people who are you know sequestered away in a uh, in, in a, a hidden mountain cabin. And, and what happens between them. And that's, you know, and, and there is, there are guns involved, there are knives involved, there are soldiers involved. But it's basically, it's kind of a, I don't want to generalize, but it's kind of a character study of eight or nine people, you know, stuck in a room. And what, what happens uh, when the bad guys come in or, you know, and having to hide and, and waiting for the war to end. So it's, it's kind of interesting. You weren't stuck in there with Peter Jason, were you? Oh, dear God. That, you know, of all... You know, of all the uh, of the, the actors that, that I had to work with in that movie, Peter, he was so annoying on the set, uh, so quiet, so so divisive. Uh, it, it almost split the, the company apart. We all voted to have him leave uh, any number of times. Now the truth. Peter Jason has been my dear friend for over 27 years, close to 30 years. Met in, met on arachnophobia. Work with Peter a lot, uh, especially, you know, and, and any number of times with Jeremy Lanny, who was the director of Deep in the Forest. He did a lot of short films. Uh, and Peter got me involved with Jeremy. And Peter is, he's, you know, if you, if you looked at his IMDb page on your phone, you'd run out of battery before you got to the end of it. I mean, he just works all the time. One of the reasons, not only is he good, but he's the most pleasant person to have around on a set that you can, that you can, you can't get a word. I mean, when he was, we did a movie with Jeremy and it was late and Peter had yet to show up. And I said to the people who were hanging around, I said, everybody better talk now and get to know each other now. Because when Peter Jason comes, you're not going to get a word in there twice. <laughs> and it was absolutely true. But God knows I'd rather have that than not have Peter Jason. Oh yeah. He's fantastic. I've, I've had the pleasure of speaking with him a few times. He's just always so nice. Yeah, he's very nice, very bright, very, very, I mean, he's worked a long time. I mean, he's been working since he was, well, he started working before I started working, that's for sure. I mean, he's been in California, gun smoking, for God's sake. I mean, that's, so anyway, that's about Peter Jason. Enough about Peter Jason. I've had it with Peter Jason. When you approach a character, I'm curious, how do you get into a role? You know, do you create a backstory? What's your method of actually, like, finding a character? Well, mostly it's drugs. Uh, it's uh, it's illicit drugs. And then after the drugs, it's basically you look at the script. I mean, a lot of people, you know, make up stuff. I, I get it from the script. If it's not in the script and there's a problem, then I have to go to the writer director and say, I don't, this doesn't make sense. Uh, but I get my stuff from the script. If it says he's a curmudgeon, the old man, or if he's a, a jolly elf or, you know, that's, that's where I get the, the material from. For years, when I first got to California, for better or for worse, I used to rewrite stuff. I mean, I was pretty brazen. Uh, first show I did, San Pedro Beach, but we were rewriting. And then all the other actors started to rewrite. And the, and the director said, these guys are rewriting. 
Uh, and the producer said, you know, some for the 1% where they screw up, 99% of the time they make it better. So just film, <laughs> film what they tell you and let's move on. So, you know, but I get it from the script. And if the script doesn't make sense, I'll fuss with it or, or ask somebody about it. You know, I don't like, oh, I'm going to look at Kenneth Branagh and do what he did. Or I'm going to look at, you know, Anthony Hopkins and look at it. Although I wish I could. But, uh, you know, you get it from the script and you get it from, um, you get it from yourself. I mean, Lawrence Olivier said, all actors have five characters in them. <laughs> five people in them. And they use bits and pieces of those characters. Well, you know, we, we're limited. I mean, there are some chameleons out there. Uh, but even they have, you know, limited amounts. So you get it. From the script, you figure out how the guy talks, maybe even how he walks, you know, uh, how he, what kind of pauses. And, you know, you get it from the material. That's that's my philosophy. What's been the most unusual role you've ever played? I guess, you know, in, in uh, Hollywood Nights, I played a character named Dudley Laywicker. And I and I, I really, you know, sometimes I use accents and dialect. But Dudley, I came up with something for Dudley that, you know, I mean, that, that was a little different. And I had to maintain that throughout, throughout the shoot. So that was a little unusual. That was one of my early things. And it was a little unusual, but uh, again, great fun. When you're walking down the street, if you ever get a chance to walk down the street again, what do people recognize you as mostly? Well, in, in, the, in the old days when I was walking down the street, they, uh, in the East, they're kind of, in the West, they're kind of jaded that way. You know, I will stop in every character actor I see and tell them I love them because I know as an actor, you want that. People don't do that a lot. Uh, in New York, when I filled up, when I was when I went back, used to go back. Uh, not necessarily the news was, you know, some of the, the kids, a lot of the kids recognized me from the Disney stuff. That's so Raven and Xenon, you know, the Xenon Disney movies I did. That's what I, I get recognized for. Maybe Fatal Attraction. In California, like I said, it's mostly dinosaurs. Now people don't recognize me on the street for dinosaurs. But that seems to be what people are coming at me with. If I ever walk down the street again, I'll, I'll make notes and I'll call you. Stuart, it was great talking with you. This is such a pleasure. This is, let me tell you something. I've had some good interviews and bad interviews, and you're a good one. I appreciate it. I really appreciate the research and the, and the interesting questions. Mm-hmm. 